Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for all citizens. This podcast was brought to you by the Alabama Science of Reading group on Facebook. With free professional learning and a community dedicated to improving reading, it's no wonder that so many people are part of this. If you aren't a member already, join for free online. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Tanya Perry. Dr. Perry is the vice provost at Miles College, an historically black college and university located in Birmingham, Alabama. Prior to this appointment, she served as a professor and former department chair of curriculum and instruction in the School of Education at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She also served as executive director for engagement and outreach for the School of Education. She also directs the Red Mountain Writing Project. In 2020, Dr. Perry was selected by the National Council of Teachers of English as its fifth director of Cultivating New Voices Among Scholars of Color. She is the incoming vice president for NCTE. She holds a PhD in educational leadership from both the University of Alabama and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Welcome, Dr. Perry. I'm so excited to have you as a guest on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to have this conversation. Right, because we've tried to do it uh, a while back. And so I'm so excited that we finally aligned our schedules and, and we could do it. So to start us off, what can you tell our audience about your background in literacy? Oh, my goodness. So let's just let's just start with I believe I started with literacy before I even attended college because I had a lot of experience with reading and writing and writing poetry, writing essays. I enjoyed literacy opportunities from uh, elementary, middle school and high school. Right. When I went to school, I went to undergrad at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And while I was there, I actually spent a lot of time with high school students and ended up working with the Upward Bound program, teaching literacy on the weekends, um, and then during the uh, summer months, spending time with students with literacy. And then that led me into my career in English education. And I've taught in urban, rural, and suburban schools. And I mainly I was a middle school teacher, but I also taught high school students as well. What I found in my background of literacy is that, honestly, literacy is actually the application of understanding and use of that application to make our world better or impact something that's larger than ourselves. That's the true uh, meaning and use of literacy. So what do I mean by that? That's my background. I found through the years that we can teach a student to read, but if a student can read for him or herself and become more independent and then take that opportunity to read to others, to help others understand, then the application of that literacy practice then has even more meaning to the person who is using that practice. The same with writing, right? That the true application of writing and understanding is being able to take it and use it in other contexts. 
that being able to just use it for yourself is just one and being able to apply it. But beyond the the teacher as audience, beyond uh, classmates as audience, being able to write for a purpose, a larger purpose, even than yourself, then that's a true use and a true application of our literacy practices. Oh, I love that. You know, as a former high school English teacher myself, I, I was just thinking when you talked about that, like how what we do in classrooms, that's not the end result or the end goal anyway. Like it's it's to change lives. And, and literacy is to me this superpower that gives us the ability to to read and write and, and change the world. Absolutely. In our classrooms, if we see the test as the end result or practice that we gauge students' understanding, then we're missing an opportunity to help them see the world as a larger place that can use their understanding to a greater degree, right? It's just not enough to take a test on Shakespeare. It's not just enough to take a test on an essay. That is an on-the-way learning assessment to something greater, you know, and what does that mean and how is it applicable and how does it enrich the, not only the students' lives, but something enriches the lives of others beyond just taking that test. That it's just not enough to give a test. Oh, for goodness sakes, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as, as someone who grew up in, in rural Alabama, you know, there wasn't a public library. I, I lived on the bookmobile when I was little, you know, and it's it's the tool that we experience the world with sometimes. And, and you know, I love it when my former students, some of who write for a living, you know, have gone on to, to fabulous things like they they've changed the world because of of their abilities to read and write and, and to shape others. So I just love that. I first became aware of your work with the Red Mountain Writing Project. What can you tell us about it and what is the future of the project? So the Red Mountain Writing Project is one of, uh, I think, 187 sites across the country, a part of the National Writing Project. And the National Writing Project historically has been based out of Berkeley, California, on the Oakland area where it had its roots. And from there, the motto for it is teachers teaching teachers. It is uh, 50 years old in um, about another year or two and has been around. And what it is, is it is the application of writing and sharing of writing, the teaching of writing, and being able to help students and teachers take it to another level, um, learning, integrating, um, applying uh, the learning together uh, from the writing that they do. So the writing project has had some really good success and it has been proven through research studies that have been done externally. But one of the ones that I remember the most, actually uh, Alabama was a part of the pilot. And that research study asked, how do students fare when they have a writing project teacher versus how do they fare when they do not have a writing project teacher. And the study was done in multiple states, not only in the state of Alabama, but we were a part of that study. The study revealed by an outside entity, not our own research, but an outside group, 
that teachers who were writing project teachers outperformed other teachers uh, in the students' outcomes for teaching writing. And that's a powerful study. Well, it really is. And what I find is we assume that people can write and can teach writing, but that's so far from the truth. It's one of the hardest and most intimidating subjects, I think, to teach. And so having a teacher who's had that kind of training is definitely, you know, an advantage to students. And, you know, I know in the Birmingham area, some of the teachers that I worked with who had been through the writing project you know, not only were great writing teachers and great teachers in general, but many of them have gone on to be uh, administrative leaders, instructional leaders. So that project had so many different outcomes than maybe what was even expected. Absolutely. And I do want to put this caveat on. It doesn't mean that other teachers can't be great teachers of writing, right? You know, we have IB teachers, we have honors teachers, we have Uh, teachers who've been trained in certain uh, fields of writing. So that is not to discount how other teachers perform, right? But what I do want to just make sure that it's clear that the writing project creates teachers who are comfortable with teaching writing and have strategies and a toolkit for making writing applicable, giving student feedback, helping students increase their writing and being able to make their own goals in writing and then coming back and being able to achieve those goals and move them throughout the school year. In addition to that, the writing project spends a lot of time on on teacher leadership. The writing project believes that teachers have the ability to lead in their classrooms and externally, and that given the opportunity, they can help families, communities, their students, their schools, and their districts prosper. And we spend a lot of time talking about the power of the teacher and how teachers can develop as leaders. That is part of, that is an outcome, you're right, that I had not counted on early on, but have seen over and over again. Isn't that a wonderful outcome to have? Absolutely. And, you know, being able to have an external group or even an internal group in a school that believes in the power of the teacher the collaborative work that you can do with parents and communities all together and being able to develop and being able to have a a sense of community and a place to go when you have questions that you want to ask that you may not always want to ask locally, right? And it's a a group of of people who are like-minded in their intention of moving things forward. Well, and that's just more important than ever because uh, as you and I were speaking before we started recording, teaching is so much more difficult than it's ever been. And so equipping teachers to be successful is just this mandate for us as a profession. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why you think writing is so important for us to address in schools. Um, How long do we have? So, <laughs> Probably not long enough. <laughs> so writing is a discipline that is across all other disciplines. You know, writing is something that is in art, in music, in social science, psychology, in mathematics, because writing has is twofold. You can write as a way to learn how to write as a as a process, but you also can write to learn, to understand, to think, to process, 
And it's, I'd like to say that writing is your thinking made visible. And that happens across all content areas. And it just doesn't end when you're in school. You'll need it for the rest of your life. In addition, because we are a technology-driven society, we write all the time. We write Facebook. We write chats. We write email. We write everything that we do, contracts. We have to communicate in written form in order for others to clearly understand what it is that we were trying to say. It is it is not a dying art. It is a it is a very living, very much a living art, right? And will continue to evolve as we have more technologies, more digital literacies, more opportunities to, to share in written form. So why is it so important? It is the way we communicate. It is the way that we share with others how we're thinking, what we're thinking, and we share what our struggles and challenges and successes have been and what we see as dreams for the future. It is all of that, whether it's a report that you have to do for someone or whether it's uh, conveying how you feel emotionally about something. You know, writing is the center and the core of communication clearly. And I've been working with some teachers in my personal work and one of them said to me when I took the praxis, the only section of the praxis that I could not pass was the writing. And so they had to go back and get tutoring and they eventually passed. But it really made me think about how writing can both open doors and close doors if we haven't taught students the skills that they need to have. And, and so I just feel like we've talked a lot about you know, the gatekeepers. And and I feel like giving students the right instruction and the right skills is opening that gate for them. Absolutely. I know it's an an older report, but the National Commission on Writing was formed. If you look at the National Commission on Writing, you'll find that the corporations got together and talked about the importance of writing and how writing was actually a gatekeeping skill. And it even impacted if you were going to be able to move up in the company or not. It was very much influential in their decisions about how an employee would be able to maneuver within that that company, right? Or that sector. And I, I would say that it's not only in private, the private sector, but I imagine it's also in public sectors as well. I can't imagine a job out there that does not value writing and being able to communicate with customers, clients, and colleagues. So it is a gatekeeping skill very much. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm so passionate about writing, obviously, as a former English teacher, but then working in schools now where I feel like it's this really untapped school improvement strategy because it does help the learning in all subjects. And there's just an infinite number of uses for writing. So thinking about you worked at UAB for many years preparing teachers to teach. What are you thinking about how this work is evolving to address the needs of teachers and students in the area of reading and writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, When we think about teaching and how teaching has evolved, let's go back to historically. Do you remember how you were taught writing? You know, I, I remember how I was taught writing. It was, you have a paper due Friday, come back with your paper done. And then by osmosis, we would 
be able to put it together and organize it. That's how it started. And then I had a teacher who took it apart and dissected it for us so we could better understand how writing was constructed to make uh, organizational meaning, to be able to help us understand the importance of clarity and being able to understand that the importance of audience. So eventually I got there, but initially it was bring a paperback and we'll see it on Friday. So writing instruction wasn't ex- explicit. It was almost like it was supposed to be an eight, right? And I don't know about you, but that that worked for me just because I had enough support systems to get through it. But I can remember many of my classmates did not have a support system to help them get through that to make it work. So now let's go into the present day and thinking about teaching writing. So when we work with teachers to help them understand how to teach writing, first thing we talk about is writing is both an art and a science. You know, it is this idea of that writing can be taught. It doesn't mean that you have to be born a writer per se, but you can be born someone who has lots of ideas and we can come up with ways in which we can convey that even more clearly. And so you can present it more confidently. And let's think about ways that we can do that and what that looks like for you. When we talk about writing now, we talk about the importance of language. We talk about valuing students' home language. And then we talk about being able to make language choices. Lots of teachers come to me and they say, my students write like they speak. Of course they do. That's all, all language is tied together. But what we want them to do is to be able to make linguistic choices. And at the same time, as April Baker Bell says in lingu- in her book about linguistic justice, is that we don't want any student to feel less than because of their choices of, of speaking or writing. But what we want to do is be able to give them choices so they'll know, well, in this context, I'm going to choose this and this is why. In this context, I'm going to choose that and that is why. So what we're doing is offering them more choices. And sometimes they may choose a home language to use. And sometimes they may choose, no, not in this setting with this audience. I might choose this. But what we want is to give power to all their languages and then give them options to be able to use those languages. So that's a different way of approaching teaching writing as a way of giving choices so that we honor whatever the languages the students bring to the the table. We want to honor those because those are the languages that brought them to school. They got them there. And those are the languages of their relatives and their friends and their community. We want to honor that. But what we want to do is give choices and help them see when During certain environments, you have certain choices to make about the language that you use. Uh, Dr. Tierra McMurtry talks about Black language. She talks about being able to help students feel good about the language they bring to to class and then being able to help them make those choices. And I, I love that. I love that about language because you can't say that a home language is not profitable. Jeff Foxworthy and Tyler Perry make lots of money from home language. Absolutely. And and I just think back to my own writing instruction. No one ever talked to me about audience. The audience was always this kind of vague, unknown people. But depending on who your audience is, that home language is sometimes much more appropriate to that audience than this kind of formal third person writing that we often teach in schools. And, and so I love that point and just the whole frame of 
the language and and respecting the diversity of our student and their experiences and perspectives because I think that that goes back to you know what have we evolved to I hope that we've evolved to respecting the relationships that we have with students and that we respect them as people and I think all of that goes together. Absolutely. And that it goes a long way with building the relationships with the students and those families as well. You don't see them as coming to school with a deficit. Sometimes I remember historically thinking about teaching writing. We think the language that students use, we see it as a, a negative, but really we should see it as a positive. If you have students who know more than one language and they integrate it into their essays, what's wrong with that? The audience may be very appropriate for that, or it's a part of who they are. So why can't we take an approach where we can start to integrate and help students understand the integration of pieces of who they are? Or you could do the opposite. You know, there are just so many different ways that we can do this. But the idea here is that not everything has to be formalized. It depends on the audience, depends on what your goal is. It depends on what kind of message it is that you're trying to convey. You know, whatever the criteria is that you might have to use in order to be successful with that audience. But those are things that we teach our students and that we should teach our students, right? I, I love that about teaching pre-service teachers and working with professional development with teachers that we, we have now. And it's one of the things that we do through the Red Mountain Writing Project and begin to become writers ourselves and then be able to bring in our own languages and then be able to make decisions about which language we decide to use when and where. So we practice what we preach. Well, and I think that that's a great point when you asked about how I learned to write. I don't, I don't remember that. I just always remember being a writer. And so I think that part of the reason that I wanted to be an English teacher is because I loved reading and writing myself. And so I felt like, how could I be miserable as an English teacher if I got to do the things that I loved every day and help students love those things too? And so I, I love being a teacher and I loved teaching, reading, and writing, and I still do. Absolutely. And literacy is, uh, to me, literacy is about freedom. Being able to find yourself, being able to convey messages, being able to find out what other people think, and then creating your own response, being able to have a voice and share that with the world and other spaces, being able to create. And that all comes with the basis of literacy instruction, no matter what your subject is. And we talk about this with, uh, we have a book called Teaching for Racial Equity, Getting uh, creating interrupters. It was. It came out in April 22, and I wrote it with two other writing project directors in Chicago. But we talk about one teachers working on themselves and seeing ourselves as people who make a difference, who interrupt, and then working with colleagues to see themselves and work together as people who are really examining their own practices, and then working with students. And then, then every way in which we work with students to become interrupters, to be able to examine their own world, no matter what the subject is, it usually includes some type of writing. So uh, we worked with a teacher out of Chicago and he was helping their student, the students understand lead. Well, the students had to write an argument um, for the use of lead and paint in, in some of their homes and how it impacted the environment. So environmental justice required some writing, some argument, some research in a science class. 
Absolutely. To me, I've written down several of the things that you've said, but the literacy is freedom. And I also think literacy is is also part of the justice and, and they're really tied together. So those are just some great thinking points. You are now the vice provost at Miles College, a historically black college in Birmingham, Alabama. Our profession desperately needs more educators of color. Do you see any innovative ways to address this issue? Actually, I do. Uh, there are several models across the country that I think that we could easily employ as part of some things that we do. Now, it will require a collaborative effort with the State Department of Education, perhaps other foundations, and then a think tank among uh, colleges. But I do think it's very possible. One is a Grow Your Own program. And they're called GYOs across the country, where you go into the communities and you work with the community members who are there who have an an interest in teaching. And then you recruit and work with them. And then there's some monetary support. And then they give a certain number of years back to the community as a result. A Grow Your Own program. I've not read all of the research. From what I've seen, they are pretty effective because uh, the people who are entering them are very interested in staying in the community and impacting the community. So they stay and work to impact and change the schools. You know, there are other programs and we've seen this through other states. North Carolina has or historically had a teaching program with the governor's support where they did a four-year scholarship for teachers and they paid it back through time. It was not a a Teach for America model. It was actually a, a model for students who actually were in education. Although you could use a Teach for America model, but this is a different model. And then there, of course, we could also do pipelines from high school. We can go ahead and start uh, not only the future teachers of America, but we could start thinking about, in addition to that, uh, recognizing students who want to be teachers or be in the education field and, and begin to cultivate and give them experience in high school. Birmingham City has a Teaching Academy located at Parker High School. It's called the Educators Academy, which could be an excellent pipeline, perhaps with some funds of students who are interested in being teachers that could uh, transition into two-year, four-year institutions like Miles College and be able to move forward. But there are just so many different models, but they will require some deep thinking and also some monetary support. But loan forgiveness, thinking about how it is that we secure teachers. How do we give them those experiences? All of that is going to be important. Couldn't agree more. And I've just maintained all along, we can recruit people, but the key is retaining people. And, And part of that comes to creating work environments that value people and make them want to be there and and nurture them. And that's our goal always. But I think that we can talk about retaining, but it's also the recruitment. So I think that all of those, I'm I'm certainly willing, if someone's willing to help us with some money, I'll, I'll start working on that those projects tomorrow. Absolutely. You know, the in Pennsylvania, I think it's at one of my colleagues has done research through the years. And he said that overall, it doesn't look like we have a problem recruiting. The problem is the hole in the bucket. Yes. And the hole in the bucket is causing us to lose people in our profession faster than we can fill the bucket. Although I do believe we have a recruitment issue. We also have a big retention issue, right? And then there's a a study by Scholastic. They, for Teachers of the Year and 
probably other studies as well, but Scholastic did a study and they found out why is it the teachers are leaving the profession? The hypothesis was money. Now, money was one, but it was not the number one. It was not the number one. Actually, in the study, we're losing people because they don't feel like they're part of a, of a contributing community that values who they are and what they bring. They uh, do not feel valued um, and do not feel as if they uh, have the ability to make the professional decisions that are best for their students and their communities and families. And as a result of being underappreciated, uh, that was the number one reason, whether it was by their, by an administrator or the colleagues or society, whatever it was, that was the number one reason. And uh, it was really a shock because most people thought it was money. And then one of the people that I talked to, they said, well, they, we all knew what kind of money we were going to make going into it, but we still did it. But right. what people may not have realized is the uphill battle sometimes when you're talking about um, the appreciation for being a teacher, you know, that's something that you might not realize until you actually get into it. Absolutely. And I've loved watching Gallup's polls of teachers and looking at you know, what are the motivating factors for teachers to remain in the field. And, and and so Alabama, I feel like, did a good job last year when we were facing this giant teacher shortages. They rolled out raises and incentives for, for people. But it's you know exactly what you just said. It, there's a hole in that bucket. And if we do not patch that up, then uh, it's going to be hard to keep putting new people in. That's right. So the so we do this in the writing project as well. We talk about what is it what does it take to one impact our profession so that the people we mentor want to stay and that our profession is seen as a profession. You know, the I had a teacher once who said everybody thinks they can teach because everybody had a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so hard. And I think that people, when they see it, don't see all of the work that teachers do before they get into that classroom in front of students. And so it's so easy to underestimate what we do as teachers. Absolutely. But I, it's the profession that makes all other professions possible. It is a, it is a, it is a profession that is the foundation for dreams for many children, you know, in addition to their homes and their communities and families, right? It is a, and it makes it possible for students to be able to, to actualize those dreams is by having an education. That's what, although there are other barriers, don't get me wrong, but, you know, certainly uh, the teaching profession really is one that creates the other professions. Now we have some work to do, but we certainly have a lot of good people who are teachers, who are literacy specialists, who believe in the power of the pen, who understand reading is foundational, who give back constantly and really want their students to be able to flourish. I do believe that. Me too. And as a first generation college student who chose teaching as a profession, you know, I feel like it was one of the best things I could have ever chosen. And I encourage people to to look into teaching if that's something that you feel like is, is of interest to you because it's changed my life for the better. So you are also very involved with NCTE, soon to be the vice president of this national organization for teachers of English. What are some of the things that NCTE is doing to help educators? I 
You know, I'll just do um, just a cursory overview here. Some of the things that uh, speak to me. Uh, One is we're working with teachers and providing guidance on censorship. Now, the idea here is is that uh, teachers need to be able to teach material that provide a, a global perspective for the student. And although we all have always known there have been parameters, in the last, I'd say, five years, the parameters have really shrunk, right? We don't have as much autonomy to be able to choose the literature nonfiction and fiction that we believe students need in order to be really good global citizens. And so NCTE provides some guidelines about how do we do that? What does that look like? And as a national organization, it does support us in the right for students to be able to read text and for teachers to be able to choose what is best for the student. The other is, is that they have statements on anti-racism, which are also guiding documents for teachers. The idea here is is that teachers want to be able to teach their students to understand the world, to be able to understand perspectives, to be able to broaden their uh, circle of influence positively beyond just that space we occupy physically. You know, we want to elevate and take our students to different places and, you know, mind travel. But, But when we do that, we have to be able to teach them to see not only their perspectives from their race or ethnicity or religions, but also to see how other people develop as well. And so uh, some people see that as brainwashing, but that's not the case. You know, what we're doing is trying to expose our students to other ways of thinking and being and then being able to, you know, being able to have conversations and being able to have conversations uh, with people who are not like ourselves and, and develop ways of having conversations, conflict management, being able to not be offensive when someone doesn't agree with you or doesn't take on the way that you see the world, but at least being able to listen and hear that perspective. And so anti-racism documents are produced by NCTE, which help us and guide us from a national and international standpoint about what some of the rights of students and teachers are in order for us to be more global citizens. So those are two of the ones that I I really spent some recent time with, but there are a plethora of resources with NCTE. There are books, of course, there are um, journals. Then on top of that, there we have professional development. But I, I just think that anything that a teacher of literacy wants to learn, digital literacies, working with students in different um, geographic areas, NCTE is a wealth of resources to do that. And that's why I'm proud to be their next vice president of some phenomenal teachers across the United States and abroad. Well, I love NCTE, and uh, I remember my first NCTE conference I went to before I even became uh, a classroom teacher, and I was starstruck by the people that I encountered and what I learned, and as you were just talking about the guidelines for censorship, and, you know, as teachers of English, we are constantly having to balance this need for appropriate material, but also material that reflects the children that are in front of us. And, you know, I've taught long before, I think a lot of the culture wars that are currently happening occurred. But even then, I just remember most of the books that I was teaching were on the banned book list. And I read banned books as a child. And 
somehow, you know, I feel like as a society, when we start banning what our children do to an extent where they they don't have any of those outside influences, then I, I really don't know where they're going to end up with their thinking and their ability to see from other people's perspectives. That's right. And I would I'd add that even if you are teaching students who are not multicultural, still teach multicultural literature because it may be the only avenue they have to have to have the dis- the rich discussions and have a better and more rich understanding of of the world, right? So it's it's for the students who are in front of you who are um, of color, who are uh, multi-ethnic, but it's also for students who feel like, why am I reading this? I'm not a person of color. Oh, but you need to be exposed just as much as everybody else. Wouldn't it be a wonderful space if everybody read lots of different literature and then could come together to have hard conversations and have a better understanding of perspective and of the world. You know, conversations that are hard doesn't mean that we all end up agreeing. But what it does mean is that we have a we have deeper understanding and perspective, right? And in in some ways it may trigger a change in our thinking. We may we may use what we call in the book, and it's a model based on uh, Yolanda Celia Ruiz, the racial development model. It may be that we have a critical humility, that we sit back and we begin to require and we begin to listen to what other people have to say. Or we may have this moment of critical reflection where we start to think deeply about, well, how did I come to believe this? Or why is it that I didn't know this? And how can I help myself learn more about X, Y, or Z? Or, you know, there's a part of this model, this historical literacy. Why don't I know about these group of peoples? Or I don't understand this part of the world. And what can I do to enhance my understanding through reading the world? How can I do that so that I'm more informed and I can travel just sitting in my seat here? Until I can get enough money to travel in other ways. But the idea here is that reading is not, it's a skill to help us so that we can communicate and I can understand. But then it goes beyond just you and it reaches, you know, my understanding of the world, my understanding of the people around me, the understanding, you're right. There's a bigger purpose, reading to understand my job, reading to understand to respond, but reading to understand who I am and where I am and how I fit in. And what I can do better in this world. That's a larger purpose for understanding reading and writing. And I just have to believe that most people in the United States right now should be able to see that we need to understand each other more than ever because the divisiveness of our culture you know, threatens our very democracy. And so we have to be able to talk and entertain thoughts other than what we believe, because that's really this reaching across, you know, the aisle and and to other people. And and that is what I feel like our our country was built upon. That's right. And it it's not easy. It's not, it's it's not really something that we go to because we're also interested in what we're interested in. Right. 
And we're also interested in feeling comfortable. And we're also interested in being with people who agree with us. And, you know, but the idea here is that it's okay to be uncomfortable and learn about something that you're not familiar with. It's okay to be able to write your thoughts and be able to process how you're feeling, your thinking, and what you are, are trying, what you're wrestling with. That's part of the reading writing process. And I think that's important. And, it, you know, I'm not sure that I answered all of your questions about this, but Thank I you. did. You think so? Yeah. I just think I just feel like I'm just honored to to be the next vice president for NCTE and, and being able to do this kind of work and represent some of the most amazing people across the country. You know, the English teachers rule the world. Oh, I will agree with that. So uh, I will forever be an English teacher. So no matter what I go on to do, that is always my heart. And so as an advocate for all students, but especially students of color, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we go forward after the pandemic with student learning. Do you remember pre-pandemic, we said that not every student could have a computer. We didn't have the ability to do that. But the pandemic showed us we did. Mm -hmm. We were able to get many children access so they could do the learning at home in a way that uh, we had ne I had never seen before or our country mobilized before to get resources to marginalized students. I loved it. Now, that same uh, tenacity, that same drive, that same support should not end because of pan we're on the other side of the pandemic. You know, how do we keep technology in the hands of all students so that they can be effective? How do we upgrade the technology that we allow them to have and be able to continue with that? How do we not have ACT scores, but use other indicators so that all students have an opportunity to try uh, and to enter a four-year, two-year institution and be able to be successful just based on grades or other authentic assessment. Do we really have to have the ACT? We didn't for two years. Yes. Some places three years, right? You know, how do we create authentic ways of knowing and being able to understand who students are so that we can create these other opportunities that at one point we said we just couldn't do if there wasn't a certain number? You know, being able to think through those things, particularly for students of color, we've done it. Why go back? Why not move forward with those initiatives that uh, or those those strategies that we use that allow the playing field to be more equal and equitable? I say let's move forward. Let's, let's not pre-pandemic in our thinking with access and equity. I'd say let's move forward with those strategies, moving access and equity forward for all students. Right. But I do see movement trying to go back pre-pandemic strategies that I, I, I think that I was hoping we would move past. Agreed. And for so many of our students, we were not accomplishing what we needed to for them before the pandemic. And so I feel like if we go back to that, then we really learned nothing from that time. And so I really think reinventing where we are with students you know, is is our next step. And I think that that's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of people rising up to work on it together because it's certainly more than than any one person can can do by themselves. Absolutely. But I, I, I predict and I could be wrong, but I predict that the students who came in without ACT scores will be just as successful 
and those <laughs> and, uh, as the ones who came in with ACT scores. I think we have to constantly question, is that what's really best for all students and for all people? That's right. And then rather than like you said, go back in time. Why not move forward? And if we find a glitch, let's work on the glitch. Let's not reinvent and go back to the old way of being just because we got a glitch, yes. right? Let's create something new. We're we're smart. We are absolutely brilliant. Why not put a group of people together who can help us figure out how to build on what we've learned as opposed to just taking on old ways and old um, indicators? Yeah, absolutely. Time to, time to move forward. I agree. Mm-hmm. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me today. It has been a pleasure talking with you and, and learning with you. The same here. I enjoyed our conversation and thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast.